turn to the book of Psalms this morning. Psalm 127 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And we're in a series that we've entitled Rhythm. Finding out that balancing our lives is, is nearly impossible, that we need to find out how God wants us to live dynamic uh, lives of rhythm uh, that find themselves in rhythm with God and His Word. And uh, uh, it's amazing uh, how, how a pastor's week uh, will no doubt always find itself in the middle of the message that he is preparing. Um, I was given the task each year of trying to connect VBS's theme uh, to the theme of the Sunday morning message so that when the parents come and, and are here, they can learn more about the gospel and more about uh, God's truth in their lives. And my theme this week is roller coasters, as you can see. And if any of you have been following the prayer update or, or Tim and Amanda's Facebook, you recognize that Tim and Amanda have been on a roller coaster. Joshua uh, last weekend broke his uh, arm just by a simple falling and uh, falling on his, his arm and uh, on Friday had to have surgery uh, to put pins into his arm and uh, seven years old you wouldn't think there's enough room to put all the pins that they did in there but uh, he is uh, he's healing and we're appreciative of the prayers but this week has been a roller coaster uh, of a week for the Bidall family we were down uh, I was teaching at a Bible camp near St. Louis and Amanda had to make a trip back uh, for a doctor's appointment and so we've been just kind of all over the place on the highs of enjoying a week away and enjoying uh, uh, just God's favor with some great weather and great activities with uh, a bunch of great people to doctor's appointments and then surgery. Uh, for us, it's been a roller coaster. For, for Joshua, it's been an utter disaster. And so our heart goes out to our little seven-year-old. Um, but uh, I want you to notice for a moment the idea of what uh, a roller coaster is. Of course, we know the roller coasters that are behind us. Uh, the roller coasters that I will just assure you, you will never find me on. I uh, once was at a uh, youth group event from the youth group here at the church. We went to Cedar Point, And I got tired of waiting in line for hours just to be the pathetic, young, pathetic older teenager who would go through the turnstile and walk right through the ride. Have you ever seen that happen? Where you just you want to hang out with your friends and then they would just rib me the whole time and I'd have to walk across uh, the ride, go from one side of the ride to the other and then watch them go on their ride. Well, they finally ribbed me enough that I was tired of hearing it and I went on one of the rides. I found out later it is the second uh, fastest roller coaster in the world and it was the dumbest one for me to pick to go on. I got on the ride and there's a little girl in front of me and I'm probably I think 18 years of age I mean there's no reason why I should be scared of anything and I sang Jesus love me as loud as you would ever hear and the little girl says what's wrong with that big guy behind me dad this is great and uh, I can assure you that I've done many different things on roller coaster rides I wanted to show you a picture of the response that I would have on a roller coaster but Amanda said it was too sick to show the church people. So I'll just leave that to your imagination of what can happen when Tim sits next to you on a roller coaster. But I'm not talking about amusement park roller coasters as the theme this week. I want to talk about the roller coaster of life. And notice uh, the definition a roller coaster is an experience or persistent or violent, uh, it's an experience of persistent or violent ups and downs as one fluctuating be between prosperity and recession, elation and despair. Some of us are living lives according to that definition. 
That's not how God wants us to look at life. Going from a high down to a low, just always finding yourself not knowing where the next dip is going to be, where your life is going to be turned upside down. God wants us to find a rhythm in life. And and one of the best ways to understand this and symbolize this, I'm going to just show just a quick video of some of the responses that we get on a human roller coaster and how that may work out in real life. So let's go ahead and watch this video for a moment. How many of you at some point in life have had one of those responses? I love the kid on the right, man. He starts out so excited and then the terror of the, of the ride begins to take over. Well, when I thought about the roller coasters of life, the thing that came to mind as we embark on this uh, journey, uh, speaking about rhythm, was the issue of parenting. If there is anything that's brought me that kind of response, going from elation down to utter despair, has been the times of me uh, being a parent. And uh, I want to talk about what God has to say for us as parents. And I know there are some uh, that maybe aren't parents today, and these truths can be made uh, a part of your life, even if you don't have uh, kids. Or maybe your kids are now long uh, away from home, grown and having children of their own. These are great truths for grandparents, great truths for us as people who want to find God's rhythm uh, for our lives. Well, when you talk about the issue of parenting, you will find yourself swinging the pendulum on a number of things. One of the first things that we see, of course, with regards to uh, roller coasters as well as in parenting is that being a parent is exciting. I remember when Amanda told me that she was having uh, our first boy, Noah, and I remember how excited I was. I remember uh, looking forward to, to buying the stuff that was going to come with, uh, with having a kid, and, and we went to some of the classes, and those were fun. I mean, those were, anytime you get to make weird animal noises and, uh, and stuff like that, that's a lot of fun. And, and we got to buy all the furniture and all the different things, and people held showers, and, and thinking about how great our lives are going to be with this wonderful new uh, baby that was coming our way. I remember during that time as well, being one of the boldest parents known to man. I remember telling everybody, well, when I'm a parent, I'm going to do things differently. I know my parents did it one way, but they were a little bit off their rocker. When I'm a parent, I'm going to show the world how parenting is to be done. Have you ever noticed that people that actually aren't parents are the smartest when it comes to parenting? And then the children come. And I remember that uh, the moment when, uh, when Noah came into uh, our world, and, and I remember thinking, well, we've got plenty of time, we'll be in the hospital for a little while, and, and we'll have some time to kind of ease into this thing. And I remember less than about 23 and a half hours, the nurses came in and said, all right, kids, you're on your own. And they wheel you out, and they put you in the car, and, and you take this baby home. And, and I remember setting Noah right when we got home onto the countertop and looking at him going, what in the world do we do now? What do we do with this thing? And so we know that it's a, a, a thing that it takes, you start out bold and then you really begin to get humbled. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're a parent, you surely recognize that children humble you. They humble you, number one, because you will learn that you don't know as much as you thought you did. And you begin to understand that kids have a way of taking away any kind of real uh, self-confidence and uh, faith in, in what you're doing. Because right when you think you've figured them out, they come up with something different. And then, of course, parenting like a roller coaster is unusual. The things that parents have to do is just plain insanity. I'll never forget the time where my beautiful wife took on the role of being a mom 
And I remember the words that uh, will echo in my ears for some time to come. Don't you dare throw up on me. Mom says that. I remember we had a group of friends over enjoying a wonderful dinner. And I remember from the bathroom, a voice yelling, Will someone come and please wipe me? Kids say, see, you get it. You you got it. I'm not the only one. No normal person would ever experience the things that we experience as parents. Things that we are called to do. Uh, The moments in the middle of the night that we are called into action. This is not like having a pet. This is not like a simple job or occupation. It is something that uh, is completely unusual in the sense that we are caring for an entire human being. And understand, because it's a human being, just like going on a ride, it's risky. It's absolutely risky. You're grazing and you're bringing forth a new person. Now, I've always laughed about this concept. You have to have a license to drive a car. You have to have a license to go fishing, but you don't have to have any training or license to have children. It seems odd, but that's the way that we have it. And yet, part of the reason why children are having such a hard time in our culture, in our country today, is because parents aren't taking their job as seriously as they need to. Now notice the final thing is, is that uh, the way of parenting is uncertain. It is uncertain. Just like in a roller coaster where you think you're going up and then all of a sudden you're going down. You think you're going to the left and you turn to the right. Parenting is that way. Right when you think things are going well, that you've got everything all planned out, you find out that things aren't going to turn out the way that you thought they were. And all the while on this adventure, as if having a child and raising a family isn't ha- doesn't have its own difficulties, we know that this world and the devil himself is bombarding you and your family with all types of temptations and troubles and struggles. And the question is, how do we as parents, as followers of Jesus Christ, find victory on this journey? Well, Psalm 127 is going to give us a great start to learning that. It's going to show us how we can find rhythm in uh, our walks as parents, even as followers of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at Psalm 127. And we're going to focus our time in under the heading uh, of how to get through the roller coaster of parenting. Here's what uh, Solomon says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you as we enter into your house this morning. And Lord, as we spend some time focusing in on a, on a role that we play each and every day, a role so vitally important. Uh, to us as human beings, to us as a society, the role of raising a family and raising children. Lord, we know that this issue of family is under attack like never before. We recognize that your ways are being thrown out for new, uh, depraved, and, and sinful ways, Lord. 
Lord, we know that the enemy is attacking the very foundation of society by attacking our families. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need to recognize your sovereignty in, in our role as parents. Lord, I pray that you would show us the way that this place would be filled with people who not only love you, but show your love to the families that are around them. That, Lord, we would be raising up a wonderful generation of children who know who you are and what you're all about and have seen that in the role of their parents and the adults in this place. Now, Lord, uh, open our hearts and ears to what you may have us to hear today so that we may go and be doers of the word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 127, like many psalms, is a song. It is a song that was sung as the family would be heading up to Jerusalem. It was one of those psalms of ascents where, where the family, as they were going and heading to worship, would sing this song, unless the Lord is in the building, unless the Lord builds the house. Those who labor are going to labor in vain. And to a melody they would sing these things. It was written by the wisest of all men, Solomon. And here's a word of wisdom once again from this wise man telling us that God has to be in the process of building. That God has to be a part of the home. As these families would journey to worship God, they must recognize that their worshiping of God meant that it impacted every aspect of their life. You see, that's the problem that many of us have, is that we will separate our church life from our home life. Solomon says, is as you are worshiping, the role of the family is to be in many ways the church within the home. That the job of the parents is to be discipling uh, their children, teaching them the ways of the Lord, so that when they gather in a public assembly as this one, the family understands that they are one family amongst many families inside the family of God, worshiping and praising the name of Jesus Christ. It is in this song or in this psalm that we are given great wisdom. Great wisdom that will enable you and I to find victory in this journey of parenting, no matter the roller coasters that come along the way. And so notice this morning, there are three things that we need to understand. Three things that will help us on this roller coaster of parenting. Number one, we need to recognize in the text that we should not overestimate the part that we play. So don't overestimate the part that you play. Notice what the text says in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. While there is much work for you and I to do as parents, while we have a great job before us, what we must understand is that amidst all of the work we do, all of the toiling, all the driving around from place to place, all of the teaching and the training that goes on for us as parents, you and I as parents must recognize that if God's not in it, we're working in vain. That we have to recognize that unless the Lord is a part of every fabric of our family's life, then we are going to struggle through this thing called parenting. It's going to become difficult for us to raise a family. Now, far too many of us are living under this ongoing pressure that if we don't perform, then the hope of our family is lost. But this just isn't the case. 
I like this phrase or this quote that was done by uh, Benjamin Franklin, which reminds us of this truth. Do we imagine that we no longer need God's assistance? The longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men and women, and without his ongoing aid, we shall, um, we shall fail in the building of our lives. You see, we need to understand that God has given us a task of being parents. And just like every task that God gives, remember what Jesus told his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so as parents, we have to recognize without God, without Christ in our life, the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our life, I don't care what books you read, I don't care what seminars you go to, if you are trying to parent your children on your own, you will fail. God says, I need to be in it. That all that you do, all the things you do are in vain unless I am there partnering with you and seeing to it that you have all that you need. Now why would God have such a control, if you will, or such an interest in the issue of parenting and the family? Well, we need to understand a couple things this morning. First of all, the reason why God needs to be in it is because, first of all, God planned the family. He planned the family. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Genesis. To the book of Genesis this morning. You can find the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, so you don't have to go very far in, in the text. And we find uh, God speaking to Adam, the first human being that he has created. And he's having a conversation with Adam. It's just him and Adam in the garden. Things are going well. And it says in verse uh, 15... I'll start in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out, of the ground of, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So let's stop there for a moment. God has Adam in the garden. He places them there. Adam is working and tending to the garden. And God sees a problem. And the problem that God sees is that man is lonely. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but man has all the food that he needs. Man has a... He's living in a perfect place, so there's no trouble. There's no struggles. There's no issues. Whatever the man needs, and we're not sure how long this process takes place, but we know that man has all that he needs to live life and be sustained. The other thing that man has that we so often forget is man has God. God is there with him. God is communicating with him. Man and God are walking in the cool of the day, enjoying each other's fellowship, and amidst all of that, having everything that he needs, living in a perfect place, and having a great relationship with the God of the universe, God looks, and for the first time, in Scripture, in the first time of human history, God says, it is not good. It's not good. 
Well, what's not good? What's not good is that man is lonely and man is missing out on a companionship. Now, notice what God then does. God then says, all right, Adam, I've got a job for you. And the job that you have is I want, I'm going to bring all of the animals before you. And I'm going to bring them before you and your job is to name them. Now what God is doing is, is God's not asking Adam to just do the naming because God is tired of creating and tired of all the struggles of thinking I've got to name all these things. What God is doing with Adam is he's wanting to show Adam all of the opportunities that are there for companionship. So he shows him the animals. And what, and what Adam begins to notice, number one, is there's a variety of species. He's seeing all of these different animals. And number two, he's seeing them male and female. He's seeing every one of the animals in all of creation doesn't, doesn't just come like he did, only one gender, but that there are two genders, male and female. Every animal in the kingdom that God had created that he was asking to name had a partner with him. And so he sees that. And he sees that after all of them were created, there's no response from Adam. Adam doesn't, as much as dog lovers, when the dogs come through, the, the, you know, I wonder what kind of dog species there was. Cocker spaniels are cute. Maybe it was a German shepherd. Who knows what it was. But he didn't say, well, that's man's best friend. That's it. That's all I need. I just need a good dog around the garden. Just someone to, to tend to, to wake me up early in the morning, to take outside and, and walk. He doesn't say that for those cat lovers out there. He doesn't see the prissy cats walk by and, and give no attention. You can call us whatever you want, but we're cats, by the way. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, that's what I need. I just need a cat around. No, as he looks at all the animals, as great as they are, as wonderful as they are in creation, he continues to be lonely. And so Adam sees, that he, or I'm sorry, Adam sees that all the animals have what they're looking for. But as he sees the animals, he sees more and more loneliness. Now notice, it isn't that God just planned for the marriage and the, and the uh, family, but he provides for it. Notice in verse 21, it tells us the following. Then Adam gave names to everyone, but notice, Adam, there was not, a, there was not found a helper fit for him. So what does the Lord do? So, notice, and that's a key point. That's a connecting point. In light of what's wrong with Adam, God does something. So notice what it says. It says, there was not found a helper fit for him. So what does the Lord do? The Lord, because there was not a companion amongst the animals that would be fit for Adam, the Lord, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now let's just stop there for a moment. What we see is, is that God then sees that Adam is unhappy with all of the opportunities of companionship amongst the animals. God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and he takes out of Adam a rib, and he makes out of that rib a woman. And when Adam wakes up, Adam sees the woman, and I would like to give you the Timbidal translation, which is very true to what the Hebrew translation is, and that's hot diggity dog. 
Because what he sees, now I want you to notice this, and we, di- we disconnect the, the creation story from one another. Notice, none of his responses with the animals was anything like it was when he saw the woman. Do you understand that? This is a very different response. The moment he sees Eve, he sees companionship. He sees exactly what he was missing out on. He sees what he saw with each of the animals, that they had someone compatible with them. Here Adam sees a helper, a suitable helper that is compatible with him, and he is the happiest man alive. And I can say that without any question, because at that point, he's the only man. So he's happy. He's tickled with this, now this person before him who is a woman with all of her beauty and an ability now to meet his needs as a human being. And what a beautiful thing that is. Now notice that when God provides this, God doesn't say, all right, you two, go start a gardening club and go fix up the garden and enjoy all that. Or, hey, here's a deck of cards. Go play cards, you know, gin rummy or something like that. He doesn't say, well, you just, you know, just hang out and enjoy yourself. He doesn't say that they are to be there to start a business together. Notice in the text that they have one sole purpose as a man and a woman. He says, it's bone bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. Now notice verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's the marriage ceremony. The marriage ceremony that God does is he brings one man, one woman, and he says, you're going to leave everything that you know in the sense of your relationships are never going to be the same because of this new relationship. This relationship is going to take preeminence over all other earthly relationships. So one of the first things that we as parents need to understand is mom and dad come are, are number one with each other before the kids. And there's a lot of parents, even Christian parents, who have elevated their children far, far above the marital relationship. And that is not the case. A man shall leave his father and mother and be cleaved not to his children, not to his job, not to his occupation, but the man shall cleave himself. He shall become one with his wife and they'll become one flesh. Now what are they to do? As a result of that one flesh relationship, they will become fruitful and multiply. It says that this relationship will be so amazing that the man and woman will both be naked and they won't be ashamed. And so here we have this relationship that God has provided. A relationship that today is under attack and is being viewed as traditional and old school. And yes, it is because it is the only true way that God wants it to be. And so then we see that God's going to protect this thing. I want you to know that within this, we see that the marriage is the oldest institution within all of the world and its history. It's the family. No matter what time you live in, whether 2013, there's a wedding going on here today at the church, and two people are going to gather together and they're going to get married. Just as they did in 1913 and 1813 and the year 13. And then 13 B.C. and 250 B.C. And you go on and you find out all throughout history, we have had men and women coming together, leaving their parents and 
making a family, being fruitful and multiplying, and doing what God has called them to. It's not that it's just in time, but in every region. There are a lot of things that as Americans that are true to us. Marriage is not one of them. Throughout all time, in all regions of this world, marriage has been going on. My dad is from the Middle East, and as long as he can remember, there's been marriages going on. It's not an American phenomenon. It's not an Asian phenomenon or an African phenomenon. It is a humanity phenomenon that when a man and woman come together, they are brought together for the purpose of starting a family because that is what God instituted. It happens in democracies. It happens in dictatorships. And so we need to understand that whatever role or place you find yourself, one thing that we all have inherent with who we are as as human beings, no matter what time or place we live in, marriage has been a part of our lives. And brothers and sisters, this is where some of the stuff that we are seeing is so dangerous today. Because that which has been around for so long is being redefined as something very different. And that's not good. And so now notice, because of God, we see that God has protected this thing. And He wants us to know that if we bring Him into it, He will protect our marriage from caving in and falling apart. Yet what we need to understand is that we've got to give God the credit. Notice in the text back in uh, Psalm 127, the text tells us that uh, it says, Unless the Lord builds it, then we'll labor in vain. Unless the Lord's in our marriages and in our family, we who watch over the city will stay awake in vain. We need to understand that it is God who watches our marriages and our families. It is God who protects our marriages and our families. And we need to understand what we have a part to play. It is not our job to figure out how we are going to protect our family and our marriages. That God is on the job and we need to give Him the credit for it. In Christianity Today, there was an article called The Myth of the Perfect Parent. And it said, more than any other generation, today's parents are worried sick that they will uh, mess up their children's lives. We must assume then that there is serious error in our beliefs about parenting. We have made far too much about ourselves and far too little about God, reflecting our sinful bent to see ourselves as more essential and in control than we really are. The reflex then is to judge ourselves by our children and to judge others by their children. The question we ask of ourselves must be reframed. We need to quit asking, am I a successful parent? And we most certainly need to quit asking the question, are others parenting successfully? Instead, we need to ask the question, am I parenting faithfully? Faithfulness, after all, is God's highest requirement for us. It is likely that we are asking the wrong questions as parents. We're so focused in on ourselves, on our need for success and satisfaction, that we have come to view parenting as a performance test. Psalm 127 reminds and echoes my following conclusion, the writer says. We are not sovereign over our children. Only God is. Children are not tomatoes to stake out or mules to train nor are they numbers to plug into an equation. They are full human beings, wondrously and fearfully made. Parenting, like all of their tasks under the sun, is, an endeavor, is intended to be an endeavor of love, risk, perseverance, and above all, faith. 
It is faith rather than formula. Grace rather than guarantees. Steadfastness rather than success that bridges the gap between our own parenting efforts and what, by God's grace, our children grow up to be. We need to understand, and this is a long first point to say this, God's got to be a part of your family. And if God's not a part of your family, then you are working in vain. Now notice he goes on, and he tells us, after saying three times, unless the Lord is in it, unless God is in it, you're in trouble, you're doing this all in vanity, he reminds us and he says the following, don't overwork at your jobs. Now in verse 2, we are reminded that now he moves to the daily ritual of getting up and working and going to bed. He says, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. There's a contrast there. Now notice, Solomon now reminds us of the issue of working. And he tells us to be careful that we're not killing ourselves trying to work. Now, bear in mind, what he's not saying is that you and I are not called to work. The Bible is abundantly clear that we are called to be those who provide for our family, that those who do not provide for their family are worse, the scriptures say, than an infidel, one who who hates uh, the word of God and, and the cause of Christ. And so we need to understand, we need to work with all of our hearts as if we are serving the Lord. But the question is, are we driven to do work for the sense of performance and the sense of affirmation that comes or is it something that is a part of our priority of raising a family now this is a hard balance to to make you know that I have not only one job but two and I have to be very careful all the more careful that neither the ministry nor the catering find its way becoming more important than the raising of my children that the number one thing I'm going to be held accountable for as a, as a father, uh, as a man, is going to be as a relationship with my wife. Where was that at? My relationship with my children. And then the church. And then somewhere down the line, he'll ask how many pork chops I cooked. He'll say, how did they turn out? He's not all that concerned about what I'm doing at work as much as he is involved in what I'm doing as a family. And so we need to understand that we cannot be people who find ourselves focused in more on work than we are on our children. Now notice, we are reminded that the work that we have is given by the grace of God. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18 says, It is God who enables you to work and have wealth. So our response needs to be, God, you've given me this job. You've given me this job to be the best that I can be so that I can provide for my family and provide for the well-being of those around me and to give back that to you, God, because you've given me so much. I'm going to work to your glory and for your name. And when we do this, it will protect us from two unhealthy things. Number one, unhealthy ambition. Some of you right now are working and working and working for a promotion. You're working and working and working for a position. You're working so that everybody will know you are the best employee at your place. You want to be the head of sales. You want to be known as the best teacher in the district. You want to make sure that your name is great. Now you may have different ways of putting that, but you're pursuing it for a gain of yourselves. And God is saying, hey, understand this. You don't have to kill yourself to work. Work is a provision that I've given you to provide for your well-being. And so we need to be very careful that unhealthy ambition 
is breaking down. And to give you an example of this, you want to know the difference between ambition and healthy ambition? And ambition, as long as it goes in line with what Scripture says, ambition is something that we begin to walk over those that are more important than that ambition to get to it. You following what I mean by that? And so is it wrong to want to be the best caterer or best pastor that I can be? No, it's not wrong. It's a good ambition. It's a problem when I destroy my family to get there. It's a problem when I break God's word to get there. When I make other things less of a priority and I make that which is lower on the scale higher as a result of that ambition. That's what makes it unhealthy. And God says, don't do that. Because you're just going to work yourself up into a tizzy. You're going to rise up early and you're going to go to bed late and you're not going to get the rest. Notice the second thing that comes. And that is, is that when we do this, we will keep ourselves from unproductive anxiety. And unproductive anxiety. There are some of you who are busy working yourself away and there are others of you who are worrying yourself. So some of you are working, the others of you are worrying. And most of the worry, notice what he says, he is eating in the bread of anxious toil. What's going to happen if this account doesn't go through? And what happens if, if uh, so-and-so doesn't get approved for this college? Or what happens if, or what happens if, and we worry about all of these things. Will we have enough money? Will Junior have what he needs to go to college? Will, will so-and-so need, have what they need? And we can go on and on about the worries that we have. And what God says is when you put God number one, and you make Him number one in your life, you're not going to have to worry about the ambitious thoughts being run amok. You're not going to have to worry about uh, having your anxiety going all out of place because, again, you know that God loves you and cares for you. He's going to provide just as He did for Adam. He's providing for us today in a way that we no longer have to worry or work for such things, whether it's anxiety or ambition. When God is not in your work, you will work long hours and worry long to pursue after dreams, and it will be a long life of sleepless toiling. Solomon said it's chasing after the wind. But notice when we give our families to God, and we give our work to God, and we give our lives to God, I have down, he gives an unbelievable dose of Ambien. An unbelievable dose of Ambien. I'm not getting any money from the pharmaceutical company by putting this in my sermon, but Ambien is a sleep drug. And if you want to know how to sleep at night without working your tail off and worrying, God gives us the prescription, for He gives to His beloved sleep. God says, when you give your life to me, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things. And what has He just talked about? The worrying, what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to do with my life. He says, you give me your life first and you won't have to worry about all that stuff. One of the greatest truths that I've come to learn as I've grown older is that I am in the hands of God. And that God is not going to allow me to experience anything without Him approving that allowance to take place. And so here's the thing, God loves me. He says He works all things out for the good. He says that in the end, no matter what I suffer in the body, that one day I will be with Him in glory. Why am I worrying? What can man do to me? What can happen? Now I know that's easy to say on a Sunday morning. But this was a truth that I know I had to learn in this economic downturn. 
especially a couple of years ago when the business was, was beginning to really struggle and I was wondering what's going to happen. And I would stay up late wondering what am I going to do? Where am we going to find the money to continue on? How am I going to make sure my employees don't have to get laid off? And God said, have I not been here with you this whole time? Have I not seen you through this? Have I not helped and shown? Look at your parents' life. How faithful I've been to see to it that the Badals have been taken care of. Why are you worrying now? I've learned a truth that I think is so very important. When you worry about something, write that worry down. Give it to God and come back seven days later and see if you're still worrying about it. Many of the things that we worry about are taken care of and we forget about it. And when we forget about it, we forget that God is truly faithful. And when we recognize God's faithfulness, we will recognize that there's very little to worry about in this world. That's why God says don't be anxious for anything. But by everything, prayer and supplication, giving your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will do what? It will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. God tells us in our moments of worry and trouble to be still and know that He is God. It is this process, promise that will help you and I sleep at night. No matter what's going on with the kids, no matter what's going on at the church, no matter what's going on at work, we are able to not worry or try to work our tails off to fix things because God truly is in control. Now finally we see that Solomon tells us, don't overlook your family. In verses 3 through 5 we see, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. As parents, we are so busy. We're running here, we're running there. We're dealing with this issue and that issue. But in all the time of our busyness, of getting through life, are we taking the time to ask the question, what are we doing with our families? And I don't just mean families with regards to us with younger children. As grandparents, are you understanding the role that family plays within your life? As a son or a daughter, as uh, a nephew or niece, are you recognizing that family is something that God puts you in? As much as you may despise being a part of the family you're, you're in, God has put you there for a reason. He planned for it and He has you there. And we need to understand that we have a role within the family, but especially as parents. Now notice a couple of things that we see that the Lord tells us. First of all, children are a heritage. Literally, some translations put it, a gift. Now we need to understand they are a reward. You and I are blessed to have them. Now I know there are times as parents we don't feel that blessing. There have been days not too long ago where I've walked into the house and Amanda doesn't seem very blessed to be a part of a family of three boys, I should say four boys. That blessing always doesn't find itself in the way of feeling great about it, but we must recognize and know that amidst all of the struggle, amidst all the difficulty, the children are truly a blessing of the Lord. They are a great gift. And in a world, in a country where children are thrown away, we need to recognize that they are a gift and a heritage and a reward. From God Himself. And so, how does Samuel or Samuel Solomon advise us? Samuel would do the same thing as well, but how would Solomon say it? He likens them to arrows. And arrows were such an important part of the life of Solomon in the battlefield. And parents are the archer, children are the arrows. 
and it gives a great metaphor as to what needs to be done. Write these three or four things down that we need to do with kids, not only as parents, but also as a church. The first thing we need to understand is that if we are going to have arrows that are uh, shot in the right direction and shot uh, to serve their appointed task, number one, arrows must be straightened. Now, remember back in Solomon's day, arrows didn't come in a box, all straight, manufactured, ready to go. They would be whittled from a tree or a piece of, of wood, and they would be fashioned, and they would come out crooked, and they were all over the place, and you'd have to little by little straighten them out. I don't know if you know this or not, but kids come out crooked out of the womb. Who taught your child to say no? They just do it. Who taught them to be selfish? They come out crooked, and that's why Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way they should go. It doesn't say let them go the way that they're going. It says you've got a job, and that job is to train them. Literally what the picture there is in our terminology today is we create guardrails into their lives. That even though they want to careen off to the right, we as parents bring guardrails in, healthy uh, guardrails that protect them from going the way that they really want to go. And sometimes they're going to crash into those guardrails, and it's okay. It's all right for kids to crash into those guardrails. It's even okay at times to open those guardrails a little more for some children compared to others. I was one that always was nailing the guardrails. And my parents gave me a lot of room to be able to work some of those bents out. And I will tell you, if my parents had brought those guardrails nice and close that would have worked for my younger brother, I would not be the kid or the adult that I am today. My parents gave me enough room, enough room to say, okay, here's the room that you've got to work and to operate, and we're going to put these guardrails there. And when I went through those guardrails, I knew it was my fault and nobody else's. And so we need to make sure we've got guardrails in our kids' life. They need to be straightened. They need to understand what their direction that they're going to be heading in is to be uh, it's to be set for them. That's the job of the parents. Number two, arrows, like children, are to be sharpened. And what that is, is for an arrow to actually work, the tip of it had to be sharpened to pierce the skin of the animal that it was trying to kill or the enemy uh, that it was, was pointed at. And likewise, kids have rough edges. They've got areas that are dull and they need to be sharpened down. They need to be sanded. They need to be prepared. And this involves discipline. Kids have areas, areas, rough areas that need to be taken care of. And one of the ways that we do that is through discipline. We need to discipline a child. And this is where the idea of iron sharpening iron comes into place. That we sharpen one another by helping one another through the art of discipline. We are told over and over again in Scripture that a child has folly built up into his heart, but that the rod of correction will leave We'll, we'll, what is it, John Pilkington? We'll send it. Drive it far. It's John's favorite verse, by the way. Drive it far from the child. And so we need to recognize this morning that discipline needs to be a part of a family's life. It's not something we should shy away from, but something we should fully embrace because it is how we are going to take away the rough edges of the child. Number three... An arrow, like children, needs to be set in the right direction. An arrow needs to be set in the right direction. Kids need to know which way they are going. They aren't just shot up into the air and say, well, I hope it hits its target. 
they are to be set in the right direction. And so as parents, we need to position our children as the archer, if you will, in the direction that needs to be uh, the way they should go. Proverbs 3, 1 through 6 reminds us of this truth. Proverbs 3, 1 through 6, notice what uh, the, the person writing in Solomon again, by the way, he says here. He says, my son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for the length of your days and the years of life and peace that will be added to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away for evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We need to show children that the best way to live life is with Jesus as being number one. The best heritage or inheritance that I will ever get from my parents will not be in monetary form. It will not be that they've bailed me out of disappointing times of trouble and trial. But the greatest inheritance that I've ever gotten is a mom and dad who showed me what it was to love Jesus. And we need to know that. And we need to be teaching our children that. And that means the following. That means we as parents must be the best Christians that God has called us to be, not just for our sake, but for the sake of our children. Can I tell you a prideful statement? I believe I am a better father than my father was. You want to know why? Because he was a great father. And God has taught me not only the truths that my dad taught me, but how to be even better now. And that's the truth of one generation after another. One generation should lead the way to make the other generation a greater generation. And here's my job. I want to make my children, my boys, be the better father than even the father that they had. That they would take the example that his, their grandparents have shown them. And they would take the, the, the example of their parents and become even better parents, more godly people than what we were because of the example that we showed them and God's working in their own lives in the days to come. And finally, we need to shoot our children off. We need to shoot them off. What that means is it's no good for an arrow to stay in a quiver, to sit there. It shows nothing. It does nothing. And as children, we need to send them off. And so we need to send them out. And that means let them go. And that allows them to then cling to their own husband or wife and to become one flesh in that relationship to start a family of their own. But that's not easy. It's not predictable. We never know where our kids are going to go. At 18 years of age, my parents were truly wondering what was Tim going to make of his life. I kid you not, my parents truly wondered, will the guy ever get married? Will he ever have a sustainable income? Will he ever be able to live life on his own? And it was risky for them to send him out and say, well, we've done the best job we can, and, and, and he hasn't taken all the responsibility he needs to. And notice, they didn't worry about it too much. They didn't work and strive and kill themselves over it. They said, we did the best job we could. God, now we release him into your hands. And what does God do? God writes the ship. And so we see that it's never going to be easy. It's not always the time that we look for that's going to be predictable but it will be victorious. And so here's the thing that we need to do as I close this out. We need to understand that God needs to be number one. That we don't have to kill ourselves to make 
ourselves make sure that we're number one. We don't have to do that. And when we make our families a priority, God will honor it. And He will allow us to see good and godly children come as a result of it. And we just need to pray for that. We need to ask God for that on a daily basis. And when we do that, God says we'll find rest and we'll find hope and peace amidst the storm. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word to speak on such a a practical subject, something that addresses our lives each and every day. And so, Lord, I pray for the families and the parents of this church. I pray for the children. And I pray that, Lord, we wouldn't just focus in on our kids one week of VBS, but that each and every day we'd be teaching them the truths of your scripture. We'd be teaching them what it means to trust and obey. We would teach them what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, let our children see wonderful godly examples of what it means to be a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. Lord, as a result, that they would see that and know there is no better place to be than to be an obedient follower of yours. That, Lord, as they grow older and they make decisions, that they would honor you with their decisions because they've seen not only parents but adults within their church and around them that have honored you in all that they do. So, Lord, I pray that this would impact not only our lives as a family but our lives as a church, that we would focus some more attention to our children, that we'd be quick to say yes when, when we are asked to serve in molding these children in the children's ministry or the student ministries, Lord, that we'd be quick to uh, pour into the lives of young people, knowing that parents are, yes, the, the main vessel of discipleship, but that, Lord, each of us have a part in spurring one another, including the young ones on towards love and good deeds. Lord, empower us as a people, empower us as parents, empower us as a church to be the the kind of example that will lead kids in the right direction. Lord, I pray for our next service as we will be spending time focusing in a little more, Lord, on the gospel and a little bit more on what it means to make you number one. And Lord, I pray that those who maybe never step foot into church will hear your gospel and, and respond in obedience today. Now, Lord, I pray that you would release us in your peace and in your love, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.